Uh, if, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a green one around you. Uh, that uh, You're welcome to use that. If you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. I'd love for you to take that. Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of, of Bible today. Uh, you're going to need that. We're going to be taking a large section here of chapter 5, and I want you to follow along with this. Uh, and one of the reasons, I just don't want you to think I'm making this up. Uh, I'm not just being creative here. Uh, this is our foundation. This is where we stand. The Word of God is our foundation. I'm not just saying that because that's what you're supposed to say in church. I'm not just saying that because it sounds good and spiritual. I'm saying that because it's, well, we give us the truth. Paul reminded the church in Ephesus that as Christians, we, we are no longer strangers and aliens. That's what he said. We're no longer strangers and aliens. We're not disconnected from God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He says this, that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the one from which every line is drawn. He's the one that centers everything. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation for us. So would you stand with me now on this foundation of the church? Stand with me now as we as we set our hearts on the Word of God, uh, as we as we look to His Word. Uh, we, uh, last week we saw Jesus heal a crippled man at the pool at Bethesda. Uh, we saw that at, at the end of that section, we were told this, this is the last verse. It says, A man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. That was not evangelism. He was going and turning Jesus in. He's like, don't, don't get mad at me. He's the one who told me to do this. So, Jesus is the one who healed him, and that leads us right into our passage this morning. This is John 5, starting in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have just sung. We have just made a confession. We have, we have admitted our frailty. We have admitted that we are that we are not strong enough on our own, that, that we need you. We need you to motivate us. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to guide us and lead us. Sometimes we need you to flat out kick us to get us to do what you would have us do. Lord, I confess that to you now personally. We just confessed it corporately. I, 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 I'm confessing that to you now. I, we need you. Because there are hard things in your word. Because sometimes the foundation isn't as easy as we would like for it to be. But it is good. It is good. So I pray now that you would speak to us, that you would that you would move me out of the way. I'm, I'm an emotional basket case. I'm, I am, I'm a, I, I, have, I do not deserve to stand up here and, and tell anyone anything. So I pray that you would move me aside as much as you can. Don't let my stammering tongue be a, be a roadblock to what you might say to us today. I pray that you would go to work on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I can be seated. I want to ask you a question, and I've thought a lot this week about how to ask this question. I'm still not sure, I'm still not sure I have it right, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, 
because there's a couple of ways that we can we can approach it. We can take it in the in sort of the positive sense. We can we can we can take it in, in that way that's sort of a positive perspective or outlook, or we can ask it in the negative sense. But for today's purposes, well, I'm, I'm, we're going to go with the positive sense, and we'll figure out if that's right or not. So so here's here's the question: What would it change for you if Jesus is who He says He is? Like, what would it change for you if Jesus is who he says he is. I want you to consider that for a second. And I, I mean, does, like, does that even matter? Does it matter to us on an ordinary day, at an ordinary time, in an ordinary place, if Jesus is who he says he is? Like, does it impact our decisions? Does it change the way we process the seemingly uh, mundane details of our lives? So, like, do my calendar, <clears throat> do my bank account, do my weekly priorities, these outward signs, do, do they offer any evidence that that actually matters to me in any way? That's the question. And so I, I know it's been a holiday weekend and everybody's schedules have been off our holiday week. Sorry, we didn't have a holiday week. We had a holiday week. It's the weirdest week ever. We had a Saturday right in the middle of it and it's just thrown everybody off. And so I, I don't know where I'm at right now. It feels like Sunday and y'all showed up and that's a good sign. But, but Let's just ask that honest question. What would it change for you if Jesus is who he says he is? In our passage this morning, we see that Jesus was not immune to controversy. As much as we might be tempted to think that he just sort of floated through his earthly existence, you know, with, with like a, a halo over his head and little angels kind of carrying him wherever he went. He's just giving out hugs and petting people's dogs and making sure everybody felt happy. But the reality is that, that his life didn't really go that way. And the truth is that his life looked much more like yours and mine than we might be tempted to imagine. He didn't just float around. He was not immune to the struggle. The truth is that if you have ever been misunderstood, if you've ever been misunderstood, you have way more in common with Jesus than you possibly have ever imagined. In this passage, Jesus is engulfed in controversy. And as you might imagine, as is often the case, is a controversy that, has, that is rooted in a misunderstanding. That's almost how it always happens in my life. Misunderstanding leads to conflict. This happens in our homes. It happens in our workplaces. Sometimes there's unspoken misunderstandings. In fact, that's usually how it is in my house. There's uns unspoken rules that we just expect everybody to abide by, and then when they don't operate under our rules, it creates conflict, and we, and we don't communicate real well on those things. Misunderstanding leads to conflict. Now, to be fair, they do understand what Jesus is saying. Let's not, let's not make that mistake. The Jews understand what he's saying. They get it. And they're, they're picking up on what he's putting down, that, that sort of idea. They, they understand what he's saying. They just don't understand what gives him the right to say it. They understand that in these opening verses, Jesus is making himself equal with God. The way he answered them in verse 17, told them all that they thought they needed to know. And that answer should be seen as a, as a formal defense. When it says that Jesus answered them, we should imagine sort of a courtroom scene there. This isn't just casual conversation taking place. In fact, R.C. Sproul says that he was giving a legal defense before the authorities who were accusing him of things they deemed worthy of death. This is not just a, a little conversation out in the street on a Saturday. This is a serious thing. And the controversy stems from the fact that he is working on the Sabbath. At least that's the surface level issue. 
that he's working on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. He gave his defense, saying, My Father is working until now, and I am working. One of the things that I've had to learn in my life, and I've never been a person, and hopefully never will be a person who claims to know everything, but I have learned that controversy is not always a bad thing. Now, it's never something that I seek. If you know my personality at all, you know I'm the type to flee from controversy at all costs. Okay, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want to be around it. That's, that's a natural sort of disposition of my heart. I don't think it's a spiritual gift. I want to confess that to you. I think that's actually weakness at times, that, that I want to run from controversy. But I never seek it. But I shouldn't always be afraid of it. Because, because especially as Christians, we know the truth. You see, what Jesus knew and what he was saying was that since... God has never stopped working. Since the Father has never stopped working, He has never stopped working either. A lot of people, probably most of humanity, tends to fall into what was just called like a deistic view of God. It's almost the default position of many of us. And the way this works is there are the ideas that is that the, the something that we see all around us, whether that's encapsulated in humanity or just all of creation, all of this something that we see all around us, uh, the, the idea that that came from nothing absolutely defies reason. Okay, It doesn't matter where you come from, whatever worldview you have, at some point you have to reconcile the fact that there is something, and if there is something, there had to be something, because you don't get something from nothing. Right? We've done this before. It's not. This isn't new information. And, and all of the detail, all of the, all the intricacy, all the nuance, all of the creativity and all of the diversity, those things point us inevitably to a designer, someone who designed all of this, someone who said, like, a kangaroo defies everything about um, just basic development. Like, that is the weirdest animal that exists, that only exists because it was created that way, a hopping animal. Right? I, it, it makes no sense. That, yeah, evolution does not explain that because that's not an effective method for travel. It's just not. And then they let you walk through the exhibit with these creatures at the zoo. That, that still just blows my mind. This thing that could stand up on its tail and whack you with its feet, and you were supposed to just walk into its cage with it. I take my kids in there with that thing. It's, I literally take my kids' lives in my own hands every time I go to the zoo. Because I think it's awesome. But anyway, uh, we see right there, there's order. Like, God puts these things in place that have no explanation outside of just his creativity. When I think this would be a cool animal, and I'm going to make this thing, there's a rhythm and a cadence to creation that is unavoidable. Like, the sun does what the sun is going to do. And I'm not talking sun as his church, so everything gets hyper-spiritualized. So I mean the sun that's in the sky. We have no control over it. Yesterday, it was 80, what, 4 degrees in Columbia, South Carolina in July? I honestly thought this could be it. Because like, like really, there have been moments where we have said, I got up, just give us a sign that you can. This felt like a sign that was coming back. I'm like, this could be the moment. Guys, have y'all gotten right? Like, I thought about emailing everybody. Y'all attention this week because stuff is going down. I mean, it was just, it was unbelievable. We had no control over it. None. I have no control over the tide. 
I mean, I can add dirt and sand to the beaches, but at the end of the day, when that tide decides to take it away or when that storm decides to come, it just gets washed away. There's a rhythm and a cadence to existence, and I can't do anything about it. So all of this had to come from somewhere, and what we say is that had to be a someone. And so reasonable people conceive this. And I'm not saying... I wrestled with how to say that because I don't, I don't like to offend. I just told you I hate controversy, so I don't want to offend people. What I just told you is that reasonable people will conceive this. And I mean that. But most of the world tends to see God as the one who maybe created everything. Maybe he put everything into place, but then he just sort of wound it up like a toy and set it spinning, and now he sits back and has no interaction with it. He's got no dynamic involvement in it. It just sort of went away. He wasn't needed anymore. He did his work and he, and he went home. That's a purely deistic world. And that's, and that's actually pretty normal in our world. That's a common reality, if, if perhaps crudely expressed world. But what, what Jesus is making clear here is that the truth is that while the work of creation was completed on the sixth day, God has never stopped working. The Father has never stopped working. He, he has never stopped sustaining. He has never stopped upholding it. The fact that we are here today proves that not one of you remembered in the night to breathe. Not one of you has told your heart to beat since you got here. These are sustaining realities that we have to deal with. That God does this work. He has not left this world on his own. And he isn't just interested in it. Like some sort of mystical like big brother up in the skies who's watching this thing play out like with his little holy bucket of popcorn, seeing how everything's going to work out, watching our pathetic drama unfold before him. Can you imagine what that would look like from having to see us dealing with the realities of our life? Like sunburn, as if we haven't learned from that yet. You think, you think when God hears God, would you tell me to go to sleep? No, he goes, look, I gave you shirt, shirts. I gave you sunscreen. Like, what else do you, you chose this, and we're praying for him to make it stop. I think you just have to wonder what he would think if he was just a passive observer. He's not some mystical big brother that's watching this thing all play out. He's here. He's intimately involved. And even in this moment that you and I are living right now, right now, is only possible because God upholds this universe by his fire. That's it. So reasonable people can see this. And what Jesus says is that since the Father is working, because he is presently working right now. What that means is that Jesus is, is that he's working. That he is working right now. And the Jews understood that. They understood him at that time. They understood that he's making himself equal with God and saying that. And that's the controversy. Okay? That was pretty, and that's, you can understand. That's a legitimate controversy. This man has just said that he is God. That's the iceberg underneath. That's what's, that's what's really there. The tip was the Sabbath stuff. The, the iceberg underneath the water is what Jesus is saying that he's God. This is the controversy that leads us to the clarification. Historically, that's how things tend to work, by the way. Look back at verses 19 through 30. We haven't read this yet. We're going to jump in here. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. 
and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I call that section clarification. I'm going to be caught back. I said we had the conflict or the controversy, now we've got the clarification, and some of you might be sitting here thinking that was anything but clarifying. And I know. There's a lot of words in there. There's a lot happening. But I think we can break this down into four thoughts based on based on four of what I would just call four statements. Did you hear those in there? They're in there. When you get into a passage like that that really starts to run, where you see a lot of red letters, it's time to start picking out key words because Jesus goes thematically when he starts talking. There were four, four statements in there. Jesus has responded to them. He's answered them. And we look at verse 19, just, just trying to bring some order to this. Jesus makes the statement, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's the first four statements. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So a couple of things here. Jesus is not saying that he is the Father. And he is not saying that he directs the Father. He is not saying that at all. Okay, The placement of the Father first is important in this statement because it is the Father who, who initiates. It, it was the Father who sent the Son. Remember back in John 1. If you're new with us, we've been going systematically through the Gospel of John. This is the way we've our chosen methodology. So back in John 1, 14, said that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father. From the Father. It would never say that the Son sent the Father. That's not how it works in the Trinity. And that provides us an opportunity here in this moment to, to look at the doctrine of the Trinity just a little bit. All right, We see that there is both an I'm going to use words that we don't normally use, right? There is an ontological trinity, and there is an economic trinity. The, uh, the study of ontology, or ontology, is the study of being, all right? It's understanding the essence of something. That's what ontology is. And so ontologically, in his essence, God is, God is three in one. That's, that's, I know that's weird. That is totally different than anything else you can ever experience. Every People have tried a thousand different ways to illustrate this. They all fall short. God is other. He is different than you and I. You and I have far more in common with the cockroach that runs across the floor than we do with God Almighty. I promise you. Okay, We're, we're way more on that level than we are on that level. So he is three in one. Ontologically, that's what he is. 
Along with that, we have what's called the economic trinity, all right? When we talk about economy, we're talking about the, the difference in roles. So it's not who they are, it's what they do. And that's where the diversity comes in the Godhead. It's called the economy of God. Economically, it's the Father who sends the Son into the world in order to accomplish uh, our redemption for us through his sinless life, through his substitutionary death for us on the cross, and it's the role of the Spirit to apply that redemption to us. And as been said by many theologians, nobody can claim this one at this point, because we do not have three gods, we have one God in three persons, and the three persons are distinguished in terms of what they do. That's about as crude an introduction to the Trinity as you will ever find. I should apologize to you, but I won't, sorry. Um, as the Father initiates and sends, the Son responds and obeys. As the Father commissions and grants, it's the Son who receives and performs. And what we see on display is a dynamic relationship among the Trinity, and it continues. Verse 20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And then down in verse 26, we're told that for the Father has life in himself, or as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. We don't have time in our journey through this gospel this morning to unpack every nuance and every detail in there. We're, we're like a stone kind of skipping across the water as we touch on this section this morning. The substance there, what we are supposed to take away is what our catechism states consider God, when we consider Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are the same in substance, and they're equal in power and glory. Now the Jews came to question the authority of Jesus. They put him on the stand, meaning to interrogate him a little bit, maybe scare him, intimidate him, shut him up, and Jesus gives his credentials. They think he's demonstrating some authority over the Sabbath, over their rules for proper observance. We talked about those were man-made rules. And his clarification is not that they are wrong. He never tells them that they're wrong. It's that they don't know how. So they don't know the how to do it. And verse 30 makes it clear that while they might think that they are in charge, while you and I might be tempted at times to believe that we are in charge, that we know what's best, that our ways are the best ways, Jesus declares that he is in fact the true judge, and that his judgment is just. So you and I seek preference, Jesus seeks justice. And the critic in the room would understandably ask, so what? I mean, anybody can say that. And any human who has ever existed in history, who had the ability to speak, could make the same statement that Jesus would say. Why do we believe him? Why do we give him more credit than we give anybody else? Even in our standards today, like, like in our church standards, we would say that the testimony of one person is not enough to be admitted into a court. That's actually in our book of church order. That if somebody comes and says, hey, did you hear Andrew doing such and such? I'm going to need some more evidence. I'm either going to need somebody else to come along and say, yes, that's happening, or some what we call corroborating evidence. It's the same back then. One, one witness was not enough. You see law and order, right? know this. We're all law experts. Thanks for that show. Remember, controversy brought the clarification. That's what this 
what started this whole conversation. And that clarification brings the confirmation. That's what we see in verses 31 through 47. It's not just Jesus who testifies to himself, though that is included. But what he's doing is sort of continuing the, the courtroom setting that's been created here in this moment. And what he's doing is he's calling his, his witnesses. He's, he's giving his testimony now. He's calling witnesses to the stand, and they're, and they're just listed out for us. See if you can track along with this. In verses 32 and 33, we have the witness of John the Baptist. In verse 36, Jesus cites the works that the Father has given him to accomplish. These are the signs. Right? These are the miracles that he did. They're, they're not just for show. Jesus isn't working some sort of like first century street magic thing. That's not what's happening here. These aren't card tricks. His signs, his works, tell us something about who he is. They testify to us of the nature and character of God. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus cites the witness of the Father himself, who spoke from heaven at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3.17. Now, that's a pretty strong one. Okay? I'm just going to say that. If the audible voice of God speaks from heaven and declares something, it's time to listen. That doesn't happen a lot. It doesn't happen a lot, even in the Bible. And so when it does, we should pay careful attention to that. The people standing around heard, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Do as he tells you. That's a pretty strong one. That's the witness you say for the end, by the way. This is, if this is law and order, that's the last witness. You call him God the Father to come down at the end of the show. And then it just does that, boom, boom, and it's over, right? Verses 39 and 40, Jesus calls on the Jews to stop searching the scriptures in order to impress others with their scholarship. We see some of that today. We see people who love to study religion. They love to study uh, ancient Hebrew. They love to study religions. They love to study things of faith. They have no faith themselves. Jesus warns against that. He says to search the scriptures and see how they witness to him. Like, maybe just take the prophets. Like, maybe the fact that Micah said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, or the fact that Isaiah 42, uh, we're told that the Lord's anointed would not come with shouting in the streets, but in humility. Or how about Psalm 2, where we're told that the Messiah would be the Son of God. And Jesus fulfills all of these things, and there are countless others. Or even before that, like, let's go way back to the beginning. And verses 45 and 47 in our passage tell them that even Moses, like that Moses, not your buddy Moses, that Moses, like let my people go Moses, okay, leading the people in the wilderness Moses, water from a rock Moses, ten commandments Moses, even that Moses wrote about the coming of Jesus. So in Genesis 3.15, the Father promised to restore restored his fallen creation. It's what's called the, the first gospel. He said, I will put in an enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the devil here. He's talking to the enemy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what's called the, the first gospel, the proto-euangelion, right? This is God promised at the fall to send a snake crusher. He promised to send one to redeem his people from the sin into which they have fallen. And Jesus claims that he is the one that Moses wrote about. He is the snake crusher. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. And he says he is the judge. The only question for us is whether or not we believe it. I asked you at the beginning, what, 
What would it change for you if Jesus is who he says he is? What would it change for you if Jesus is who he says he is? And that's who he says he is. Because I'm the reason. I'm the Savior. I'm the snake crusher. I'm the one who's come to make all things new. What would it change for you if Jesus is who he says he is? Because he doesn't claim to be a nice guy. I mean, never once says that. Hey, guys, I'm nice. Leave me alone. That would be my first defense. If the Jews came and started interrogating, look, I'm not trying to bother anybody. I just made a guy who couldn't walk. Walk. That's a nice thing to do, I think. Wouldn't that be your defense? You don't go to your doctor who's healed you. Man, what in the world? You told me to take medicine on a Sunday? No, you'd say thank you. And then you'd recommend other people go and visit that doctor. He doesn't say he's a nice guy. He doesn't say he's a good teacher. He doesn't say I'm a mystical healer. He doesn't say, bring everybody. In fact, if you count the signs in the Gospel of John, there's like eight. He doesn't say I'm a healer. Go get everybody. Bring them down. Let's heal everybody. We see that in our world, don't we? The Georgia Dome gets packed once a year for special healings. And then you see people leaving in wheelchairs. It's always a concern, by the way. You can't say that. You can't say he's just a good teacher. You can't say he's just a great healer. He claims to be the eternal son of God. And so you have to decide what you believe. He is either a liar, right? He's either just lying to us, which would make him wicked, or he's a lunatic. He's crazy. I mean, we see that in our world today. It's okay. We can say it's safe to say it. We see crazy in our world today. He's either a liar or a lunatic, or he is telling the truth and he is the those are the options. Those are the only options. Stop worrying about it so much. You got three choices right there. And C.S. Lewis famously said, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him or call him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. He said, Jesus is who he says he is. What would it change for you today? What would it change for you when you're at work and there is nobody there to hold you accountable? What would it change for you when you were choosing what sort of movies to watch, concert tickets to buy, or what TV sh- to, buy, to buy, or what sort of TV shows are appropriate for your family? What would it change for you when you're on vacation? What would it change for you when you take a trip out of town with your girlfriend or What would it change for you if Jesus is who he says he is when considering which activities you're going to commit your children to that might take them out of Lord's Day worship? What would it change about how you structure your weekend? What would it change about your approach to Saturday night? What would it change about your Thursday? I ask myself this question. What would it change for me if Jesus is who he says he is on Thursday night at 9.36 p.m. when I'm about to re-watch an episode of The Office? For the 40th time. What would it change about the way you view the staff as a restaurant? Like, are they a human being with a soul? Andrew prayed that earlier today. Do we see our neighbors? Do we see our community as people with souls? Or do we see them as just another person who could bring our chips and our salsa and do it quickly? What would it change for you? What would it change about how you hope? What would it change about how you dream for the future? What would it change about how you pray, if you pray? If Jesus is who he says he is, what would it change for you? The 
God's that changes everything. And if he's not lying, and if he's not crazy, if he actually is the Lord, it changes every moment. It changes every relationship that you'll ever be in for the rest of your life. And it changes, it changes your approach to every circumstance you will ever find yourself in. Because now every moment of darkness is a moment of opportunity. And every moment of joy is a moment to invite other people into. It changes every commitment that you'll ever make. And it changes whether or not you'll uphold your commitment. And why? It changes everything. Jesus is who he says he is. It changes everything. Because that's what it means to go from death to life. Remember that part in there? Even as the Father can raise the dead to life, so also the Son gives life to whom he lives. Because in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. <clears throat> see, that's the offer of the gospel. It's not to have better hobbies. It's not to have better dressed friends. It's not to have Sunday morning communion. The offer of the gospel is the offer to go and there is no greater change than that. No greater change. What's our response? Look back at verse 23. Our response is to honor the Son. To honor Him. That's a heavy word. What does it mean to honor the Son? To worship Him. It means to lay our lives before Him. It means to value Him means to submit to him, even when we don't want to. Even when we think it's our right. Even when we think it's our privilege. Even when we think that this is the way it should go. is that we submit to him. It's to walk with him as our Lord. Knowing that he's not a liar. And certainly not a man. Father, God, I thank you for sending your son to come and live a life that I cannot, as hard as I might try. To come and die the death that I deserve to fully pay for all my sin. Even as we talked about with the kids this morning, to pay an impossible debt that I owe I thank you for sending your son to come and redeem even someone like me. And that if you can save me, if you can save me out of my sin, if you can save me out of the hardness of my heart, if you can redeem me, God, you can redeem anyone. That there is nobody off limits to you. And the offer of your grace, the offer of your mercy is there for us at the cross. God, would you forgive us if we don't share that? And would you empower us by your Holy Spirit to bring you the praise that you deserve, to give you the honor that you deserve, and to invite every soul that we come into contact with to join in that song? Lord, I pray that would be us as a community. I pray that would be me and my house, that we would live this Thank you for loving